Welcome to the One Life Podcast, where we have rare but vital conversations about Jesus. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the One Life Podcast. One Life is a startup church here in Nashville, Tennessee. Our mission is to build extended families of disciples that live on mission together. I am Tiffany Ketchum, and here with me is my husband and co-host, Tim Ketchum. Hey, everybody. So we're on episode 73, and we are thankful that you have tuned in today. Question, Tim. Are we still on the Passover? <laughs> <laughs> Technically, we have moved on from the Passover, but we are about to enter into the Red Sea. Both. Well, you got a couple of puns there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, moving entering on. into the Red Sea. And it? moving on. Yeah, moving on. <laughs> okay, so we are in the story of the Israelites. They've left Egypt and are in the desert. Yeah, so they're they're heading away from Pharaoh, and God basically says, hey, I could take them the closest route possible to the promised land, but they would probably encounter war. And so he's like, I'm going to have to take y'all the long way around, because I don't know if you're going to be able to handle a conflict on the way. So it says that he takes them into the wilderness by the Red Sea, and so this this episode, we're essentially going to do some background material on the Egyptian, the way the Egyptians saw their land and saw their geography and how that played into their religion, because there, there's a lot going on here in this crossing of the Red Sea that if you don't know the background, you're just going to be like, oh, cool, God parted water and they walked on dry land. Wow, that's awesome. What an awesome miracle. Yeah, but there's... There's a whole lot more going on here symbolically with where this is happening and what it would have meant to not only Egyptians, but also the Israelites, because the Israelites, you know, spent close to 400 years in Egypt. And so they're, they are not ignorant of Egyptian religion. They, they know what certain gods are, what they stand for. They know about certain places in, in Egyptian uh, landscape. There's a lot of symbolism and a lot of things that God is setting up and synchronizing with this crossing of the Red Sea. One of the ways the writers capture this is even by using the term the Red Sea. You know, we tend to think, oh, the Red Sea, and you, you know, you pull out a map and you look on it and you say, oh, there's the Red Sea, you know, right there with the Sinai Peninsula and Egypt and all that. But the word for sea is, it can be translated in different ways. One of the ways that word can be translated is like at the edge or at the boundary. The Egyptians saw this area that Israel was going to by the Red Sea. They saw it as the boundary marker between their land and the lands of all the other nations. And this is going to become important when we start talking about, again, Amun-Ra and the role that Amun-Ra plays in this crossing of the Red Sea. That's just one detail about the term Red Sea is that we're talking about a boundary marker. We're, we're talking about uh, the borderlands and Israel is approaching that borderland and God is going to lead them into that place. The other thing that this word can be translated as is it can also be translated as reeds. And that's why in some Bible translations it says that they were taken to the Sea of Reeds, R-E-E-D-S. 
again, this is where like knowing a little bit about the Egyptian religion comes in handy. So I don't, I don't know if our listeners have ever seen, you know, the movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe, but you know, at the, at the end of the movie, he dies, right? And after he dies, it's, he's pictured. Oh, you just gave a. <laughs> oh, <laughs> sorry, I'm spoiler just, alert. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's an old movie. Yeah, it's pretty old. Um, after he dies, he's pictured as walking through a field of barley. And then he sees his wife that was murdered, you know, and there's this big happy reunion, right? Well, in Egyptian religion, when someone dies, they have to pass through something called the Sea of Reeds. In other words, the Sea of Reeds is a boundary marker between the living and the dead. And the way that you make a safe passage through the Sea of Reeds is you have to have like certain things done at your funeral. You have to have a proper burial. Ideally, you would have like some kind of religious figure do some kind of, you know, seance or ritual or what have you. And it basically gives you safe passage through the Sea of Reeds. And once you pass through the Sea of Reeds, you then land in the Field of Reeds, which is kind of like the the Gladiator movie. You're, you're in a field with the gods, and it's a happy place. And so all of this stuff is going on in the background, okay? That th- there's this boundary area. They're going up to the Sea of Reeds, which is symbolic of the realm of the dead. It's symbolic of a passageway of entering into death. So there's symbolism here about death, but... You know, in one of our previous episodes, we explored how Amun-Ra played into our understanding of the sacrifice of the lamb on Passover. And he was an Egyptian god. That's right. He was, he was the chief Egyptian god. He was the highest ranking god. Uh, Amun-Ra was also not just typified as a ram, but he was also the sun god. And in Egyptian religion, every time the sun rose in the morning the God was coming out of the realm of the dead, out of the underworld. And the sun would rise up and then Amun-Ra would kind of survey the land and govern the land during the day. And as the sun began to set in the west, they said, oh, this is Amun-Ra going back into the underworld. And every time he went back into the underworld, he would wage a war or a fight against a sea dragon a serpent of sorts called Apep. And Amun-Ra, sometimes, it it depended on which Egyptian mythology you read, he would have certain helpers that would help him do this. And one of those helpers was the god of Set, who was also the god of the wilderness. Uh, So that's a little tidbit too. Like, where is Israel right now? They're wandering in the wilderness, which is the domain of the god of Set, who also helps Amun-Ra defeat an underworld, the realm of the dead serpent named Apep. When Amun-Ra, the sun, would set, he would fight this serpent, and then the next day, when the sun rose, the implication was was that he defeated the serpent and then rose back up out of the realm of the dead, and it just repeated over and over again every single day. And so the sun rising in the east is a sign of victory, that you have escaped the powers of death, and that's sort of what gave Amun-Ra his power of life, to give life. Uh, so, you know, th- 
these are all very important details because when we read through this narrative of the Exodus, there's going to be certain things that come up in the story that if you know this, you're like, oh, I get it. God is trying to message and send a signal that he is more powerful than Amun-Ra. He is more powerful than the God of the underworld. And he's actually the chief God over all the other gods. That's sort of an some background material that we're going to have to draw on as we go through this story to kind of get the full meaning of it. Definitely don't usually hear those things when we're talking about the story in, yeah. bu- in Bible class or something. Yeah, it's it, it's a little bit nerdy. You have to kind of do some homework on it. Yeah. But I definitely think it enriches our understanding of what's going on here. And, you know, if if you keep this in mind, too, is that because they're approaching a boundary marker and quote-unquote entering into death, it's very similar to what you find in the beginning of the story of Exodus because you have uh, babies being born, and then Pharaoh comes to try to kill the babies, right? And so here you have Israel being born. They're the firstborn. That's what the killing of the the Passover is about, and God gives specific instructions about them being God's firstborn. And now that they have kind of left the womb, they've been they've come out of the womb. That's here comes Pharaoh again to try and kill the firstborn of God. And so you 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 have sort of like the same narrative repeating itself, but it's it's on a macro scale instead of a micro scale. So there's there's the looming power of death and the enemy trying to frustrate God's plans to bring life to the world through Israel. It's, it's all being dramatically rehearsed in this narrative again. Okay, cool. Uh, and where are we at in Exodus in so, this story? So we're going to start at verse, verse 1 through 3, and then we're going to make some, some more comments here about the context of this story and, and kind of set up the conflict and the drama for what we're about to enter into. Exodus 14, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hahirath. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Between Migdal and the sea. There they are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Belzephon. The imagery here is that Israel is making progress. They're they're going in a certain direction. They're, They're like, let's get out of here, let's go. And God actually tells them to turn back. He says, I want you to go back. It's implied that they've already passed this location. And the implication here is that the Lord may have actually seen Pharaoh starting to pursue them. And he's like, wait, if they're going to be coming after Israel, I'm going to set this thing up. I'm going to position Israel to learn something about me and about the Egyptians and Pharaoh and their gods. And so God's kind of kind of like doing a setup here. He's doing a, a strategic encounter. And he tells them to turn back and I want you to camp between Migdal. And th- this is basically a Hebrew word for a, a defense tower. It's basically a, a strategic military watchtower. So if you're Israel, this is probably not a good place for you to camp out at <laughs> and wait for the enemy to arrive. It basically gives the enemy a strategic advantage to climb up into this tower and to see all of the battle. And 
some people even say that this tower was potentially had like, you know, pigeon messengers. So, for example, like when you see something and you want to make sure you can get the word back home to Pharaoh. You put the note in the bird. You put the note in in the bird's mouth or in the little thing attached to his leg, you know. (laughs) And you send it to Pharaoh. I thought that was only in the movies. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, they actually did it back then. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's a c- communication strategy. There's a vision strategy with this with this tower. And God is saying, hey, I want you to go camp really close to your enemy's strong tower, which is a potential setup for failure, right? And then he says, I want you to, uh, this Migdal is opposite of Baal Zephon. And Baal is, of course, the Canaanite god of the land that God is going to be taking his people to. And this god is also a god of the sea. He's also a god that goes down into the underworld and fights with a, uh, the god of death and then gets brought back up out of the realm of the dead. So, so there, there, there's like a whole storyline that's going on with Amun-Ra, and then there's a very similar storyline going on with Baal, who is the god of the land that they're going to. And so it's almost like God's getting a two-for-one here. He says, I, I'm going to position you in a place where both gods of the lands that you're coming out of and that you're going into are being symbolized by this encounter that you're going to have at this sea of reeds, this entryway into the realm of the dead. So there's a reason why these names are mentioned here. <laughs> They're just not random names like, oh, this is so you'll know where it is. <laughs> yeah, it's not like saying, well, you know, this is Nashville and this is, you know, Clarksville, you know. <laughs> right. There's a meaning that God is trying to position them to learn. He's kind of stacking the deck against them. And it's one of the reasons why the Israelites are kind of starting to have become nervous because they're starting to see, uh-oh, this is not a good position for us. This is not a good spot. Not looking good. Yeah. All right, let's go on to verse 3. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. Basically, God is actually empowering, enabling, uh, facilitating Pharaoh to pursue them. And what's really interesting is like if you keep reading in Exodus 14, it actually says that they start off like really emboldened. It's kind of like they're, yeah, you know, God God, uh, liberated us. We got all this gold. You know, we're, we're leaving Egypt, and they're all bold and courageous. But then they see the dust kicking up from the chariots and the horses of Pharaoh and his armies, and that's when they start getting nervous, mm. and that's when they start getting scared. And so we're going to start off in verse 9 uh, of Exodus 14. We're going to s- skip down to verse 9 and read some. The Egyptians, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hahirath, opposite Bel-Zaphon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? 
What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Okay, so the the situation here is that they think they're going to die. And what's kind of poetic. Understandably. Understandably, yeah. They're being pursued by uh, chariots and horses and a massive army. And the the sort of you know poetic symbolism here is they think they're going to die in the wilderness and they're going to die right beside the Sea of Reeds. And it's it could potentially be a smack in the face. Like, you, we went through all this. You got us, you know, out of Egypt per se, but now we're going to die? Like, we haven't even made it out. We're, we're almost at the finish line. We're about to cross the boundary, the edge. We're at the edge. We're really close, and now it's all just going to get shut down. So it's it's a it's a feeling of, I thought we were going to make it, but I don't think we are. And that's a very discouraging feeling to have if you're on a journey and you feel like you're about to make it out. And then you're thinking, well, I guess it's not going to happen. So we have the Israelites coming free from the slavery situation, and they look like they're making some progress, and then they end up in a dead end. Dead end. Oh, good one. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> good sorry. fun. Oh. That's great. I didn't. Yeah, I think, mm-hmm. I, you know, if, if we were to bring this down to a practical level, if you think about trying to make progress in our spiritual life or even just like a like a goal that you have in life, there's always obstacles that get in the way. And if you feel like that obstacle is going to permanently stop you and you can't reach your goal, it can be really discouraging. And Death, of course, is the ultimate obstacle to our progress. It, it's the main barrier that stops us from reaching the goal that God has for us. And we're going to go up to a passage in the New Testament now because Jesus also struggled with this barrier and with this obstacle. And he had to have some people come alongside him and encourage him people who have actually walked the path before him to say, hey, keep going. Even though you're going to hit this this barrier, it's not going to be an ultimate barrier. It, it's not going to ultimately stop you, even though it will seem like you're in a pit stop. So we're going to go up to Luke chapter 9 and start with verse 27. This is the episode where Jesus is transfigured on a mountain. All right. Verse 27 of Luke 9. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Okay, quick pause. Kingdom of God, one way to think about that is God ruling over the forces of evil. A lot of people get tripped up on this verse and they say, oh wow, I guess you know the kingdom of God came in full before all of Jesus' disciples died. And it gets off into preterism and kind of weird doctrines about eschatology and whatnot. But if we can think about the kingdom of God as as God ruling over the evil forces, there's people standing with Jesus at that moment who are going to see a picture of what it looks like for God to overcome the power of death. And that picture is portrayed to them in Jesus' transfiguration. Jesus being transfigured before them, him glowing, him radiating with light, 
This is an image of a glorified, resurrected body. This is an image of an angelic or a heavenly body. And the same word that's going to be used to describe Jesus in this passage is also used of the angels at Jesus' tomb for his resurrection. And so this image is an image of the kingdom of God. It's God ruling over the power of death. So about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. This is a very interesting passage because when he says that Moses and Elijah show up to talk to Jesus, they're specifically talking to him about his departure. Now, some translations use the word decease, but if if you double-click on that word, the word in the original languages is the word exodus. Ooh. Ding, ding, ding. Moses and exodus. Well. (laughs) (laughs) So... Essentially, Luke is framing Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection as the story or the narrative of the Exodus. And isn't it interesting that Moses, the one who led Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the Promised Land, he's one of the people who comes and shows up to talk to Jesus to encourage him about his own Exodus about his entering into death and then coming out on the other side. The, the other person that shows up to talk to him is Elijah. And if we know the story of Elijah... He kind of escaped death. That's almost. right. He was lifted up he was without lifted up. dying in, in the flesh. Which pretty much kind of points to Jesus' ascension. And so here Jesus is being encouraged by two people who have gone through their own form of exodus, their own form of entering into death and then coming out on the other side and being raised up to the place that God always wanted them to be. He's basically got two pioneers coming alongside him saying, don't give up. It's, it, you're going to make it. It's going to be just like the exodus. It's going to look like a defeat. It's going to look like a setup from the enemy. It's going to look like you're hemmed in and there's no way out, but God will make a way. God will pull you out, and that will not be your final resting place. That's not going to be the end of your story. This tension that we're seeing in the Exodus story, this story about God leading his people out of slavery, he's leading them up to what appears to be a very bad situation, which is very similar to Jesus dying on the cross. It looks like a very difficult and bad situation, but God is going to use that to make a way out. He, he's basically going to use that to show off his power over death. Yeah, so interesting to connect these two really big stories in the Bible. And, and we're running out of time, but is there anything else we want to talk about in this? No, I I think that's it. I I think we'll do part two on our next episode. We'll keep working through Exodus 14. Yeah, guys, we're not going to leave you with a cliffhanger. We are going to continue in the story of the deliverance of the Israelites. But I guess you get a little hint 
about what's going to happen if you know the story of Jesus. Yeah, we'll leave it there. And I hope you will join us on next week on the next episode to continue in this very interesting and really big story in Exodus. So if you want to join us next time and you haven't hit that subscribe button yet, then you may want to do that because we're going to keep on trekking with this story. Thank you so much for listening today, and we will catch you next time.